that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. As we recognize Labor Day here in uh, British Columbia, here in Vancouver, uh, we're going to be discussing the history of the labor movement in Vancouver um, with Ben Isaac in the second half of the program. And on the first half, we'll be discussing some current issues facing working people across British Columbia and uh, also issues and opportunities facing the labor movement. And as always, we'll put an urban lens on these discussions. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And welcome to the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and that's also available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And uh, thank you also if you're listening uh, syndicated on CJSF uh, out of Burnaby. And uh, as we recognize Labor Day here on the program, we have a full hour dedicated to uh, labor issues. And uh, as always, as I mentioned, uh, thinking about these things uh, with a bit of an urban lens um, as we approach these is- issues of, of labor and uh, economic uh, security and uh, economic justice, among, among other issues. And uh, with me on the program live, uh, Marjorie Griffin-Cohen. She's an economist and uh, professor in the Department of Political Science and chair of the Women's Studies Department. She's written extensively in the areas of political economy and public policy with a special emphasis on issues concerning the Canadian economy, women, labor, electricity deregulation, energy and the environment, and international trade agreements. She was the principal investigator of a five-year Community University Research Alliance grant, and uh, that project was called the Economic Security Project, and it focused on the impact of, impact of government policies on vulnerable populations and how to construct policy to meet the needs of these groups. And her most recent books um, are Public Policy for Women and Remapping Gender in the New Global Order. Um, and also on the line, I have uh, Jim Sinclair. He is president of the BC Federation of Labor. And uh, this represents umbrella organization that represents uh, 54 unions and uh, four, 450,000 private and public sector workers. And uh, he was elected as president in 1999. I want to welcome both of you to the program. Are you with me, Marjorie? Professor... And uh, Jim Sinclair, are you with me? Okay, it seems like we've lost them, but we're going to take a quick music break, 
Uh, stay with me. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM. track from the shout out louds and uh, on the line i have professor cohen thanks so much for being with me it's a pleasure i want to first begin by asking you uh to reflect on uh, where we're at um and and some of the issues affecting both um organized the organized labor movement and uh, also non-union workers across uh, across british columbia and uh, specifically here in vancouver Labor has really taken a beating, both, you know, in the past 12 years since we've had uh, the Liberal government in, uh, in office. Um, basically, what has happened is that the government has had a low-wage strategy. The idea was that if wages were low, then more people would come into B.C., would hire more people, etc., um, and the low wage strategy has been really quite punishing. So, basically, since uh, this entire century, <laughs> since since the year two thousand and one, uh, the average wage in BC has been lower than the national average, and most people don't realize that. So, there is a big difference here between what people can expect to earn and and what the rest of can of people in Canada do earn. Uh, so my sense is there is a lot to look at with regard to government policy and how government policy contributes to keeping wages low. And, and what are some of those, you mentioned, uh, you know, 12 years of the BC Liberal government, yes. what are some of those policy uh, changes that we saw enacted uh, around 2002 that have brought in um, some of these um, uh, uh, changes that you, that you mentioned? 
Sure. Some of them were uh, really direct things, and others were just inaction. So I'll start with the inaction, first of all. That was that um, we did not have a change in the minimum wage for over 10 years. And this government also instituted something we referred to as the training wage at $6 an hour. Um, but the minimum wage was uh, was eight dollars an hour for you know like for, for over ten years, and nobody can live on that. I mean, nobody can live on that kind of wage in uh, in Vancouver or basically anywhere else in the country. So it was uh, it was extraordinary uh, in, in the beginning uh, of of this century. Um, BC had the highest minimum wage in the country, and by the end, it had the lowest. But they introduced some other things that were really quite alarming and were peculiar to BC. So one in particular was lowering the, lowering the working age to 12. So we became, we in BC, <laughs> became pioneers in child labor in the, in the Western world, you know, basically in the industrialized world. Um, after we did it, then Alberta followed suit. But this was really a fairly extraordinary thing to have happen. Um, so we we allowed um, we allowed um, people as young as twelve to work as much as thirty five hours a week in the summer, uh, uh, and that is fairly extraordinary. Um, they also reduced all kinds of uh, prohibitions against work that children could do. But in addition to that, I mean, there's just such a long, long list of things: um, a two year wage freeze for the public sector. Um, and they actually ripped up contracts of, uh, of uh, health care support workers, and this resulted in the mass firing of over 8,000 uh, mostly females in, in, um, as they contracted out and privatized the work of these, of these uh, people. So this was the biggest mass firing of women in the whole history of the nation. Hmm. Um, people tend to forget these kind of things. They also ripped up the teacher's contract. Now, later on, of course, um, the Supreme Court found both of these actions illegal, but of course by then the work's been privatized, things have changed, and the workers never do quite recover. Um, the other thing that they did, which was fairly phenomenal, is to remove all people who are in a trade union from the protection of employment standards legislation. Now, employment standards are all those things that govern hours of work, how much you have to be paid, like the minimum wage, how much you have to be paid for overtime, all of those things that kind of protect people. So what they said is, basically, one-third of the labor force are not going to be covered by this. And that was pr- particularly problematic because there are some trade unions, um, uh, most n- notably those uh, associated with CLAC, which is a, a Christian labor organization, that sometimes bargain below uh, accepted uh, standards that are minimum standards in employment standards legislation. So that be- means that some workers, even if they're in a trade union, are um, are except are are not governed are not protected by um, minimum legislation um, so there's there's just a whole list of things that one can go on and on and on about that the government introduced that made life more miserable for people so for example you used to have um, 
uh, 24-hour notice of a shift change. This is particularly important. Well, it's important for everybody to know what your work schedule is going to be, but particularly if you have children. So you can imagine when that was eliminated, what that meant for people who had to um, find alternate arrangement for children if their shift was scheduled. Your research uh, over the years has also looked at, and this has been um, some of your work through the Economic Security Project, it's looked at um, public policy options or alternatives um, to improve the quality of life and and the economic security of low-wage workers. Can you talk about um, what some of those conditions look like um, in places like the Lower Mainland or Vancouver, where you see this intersection of incredible housing costs and lack of a coherent, right. um, you know, or, or public um, child care um, program and other things like a generally a fairly um, unspectacular um, local labor market where it's it's, you know, it's, it's uh, fairly polarized in terms of um, the incomes and earnings uh, within uh, the Lower Mainland. Well, you've hit on so many of the issues that are really significant for people living here, and, and uh, particularly groups that tend to be vulnerable. So these are uh, young people. Um, these, uh, you know, they really have a hard time now, and mostly almost no one can get a full-time regular job. Uh, they have to rely on precarious kinds of work. Uh, this is also true for immigrants. It's, it's also true for racialized, specific racialized groups. Um, and it's also more true for women than for men. So it becomes uh, very hard for certain kinds of groups to really get a good toehold in the labor market. Um, so we've seen a big shift to precarious work, and as you say, this becomes particularly difficult because um, it's expensive to live here. And if you don't connect with the labor market in a meaningful way when you're first entering, then it becomes harder and harder all along the way to, uh, to maintain that connection or to move up a ladder. So... Um, so these are serious things to think about that are going to have long-term reper- repercussions in um, in BC. I think a low-wage strategy and promoting precarious kinds of work um, as a more normal way of cons- thinking about work is ultimately going to not do the pro- not not serve the province well in terms of economic growth and development. What do you make of the current uh, the current language coming out of uh, the provincial government um, around sort of um, skills shortages and and the need for for workers in certain industries and sectors? Do you uh, do you find merit in these arguments? <clears throat> well, there's never a perfect match between the skills people have and and what employers need and. What has happened is that employers have tended to abandon this idea that they need to do any training at all. So, and we've also seen in this province a reduction in the skills training in the, and when we think of that in the uh, building trades, um, there have been those kind of reductions. But in fact, we have a very well-educated population, and these are people who can learn things fairly quickly as a result. So um, it is something where both the government and the employers have really fallen down on the job, and now they're kind of blaming the individual worker for not acquiring the right kind of skill. So that is, that is really quite unfair. Um, it's also expensive to acquire these skills because 
very difficult if you're in apprenticeship program, for example, and of course very few people are in apprenticeship programs, but if you are in one, um, it's hard to actually get paid to do that kind of work, which is what you need in, in order to um, in, in order to qualify. So what happens is that a great deal of work, which used to require apprenticeships, now is very, very casual labor that is very, very poorly paid. So a lot of a lot of the skills that were required for uh, carpenters, electricians, um, plumbers, they are now being uh, uh, broken up and um, and treated in a very discreet kind of way so that you don't have to go through uh, the expensive um, notion of hiring somebody as an apprentice. Mm. I guess also, in addition, um, what are we seeing locally and, and maybe on a more regional level um, in terms of looking towards, um, I mean, we have a, a, a an economy based um, largely around retail trade and, and service work um, to a significant extent. Uh, what are ways, I guess, to also think about um, economic development that perhaps is more um, equitable and in in its growth and and who it benefits. Um, Is there any of that going on at the provincial level to recognize some of these geographical... I don't see this other than tourism. I don't see the provincial government talking about areas where there is a real need for labor. And I'm thinking these primarily in the areas where, um, like in elder care, in... um, in child care, in these areas where there are desperate needs, there's no sense of expanding the kind of work that is available there and the kinds of jobs that um, would bring services to people that are really needed. I mean, it's fairly clear in this age of, um, of climate change and the destruction to the environment that's occurring through uh, the you know, exploitation of the resource sector, particularly the energy sector, that moving in that direction is not particularly good for us. And that is the economic growth area that the B.C. government has settled on, not on providing things that people need, but on exporting energy in the future. And that's that's their sole approach to economic development, as, uh, of course, there is, a, as I said, a nod in the direction of tourism as well. But that is their primary approach, and I think it's misguided. It's not what we need. It may not even work as a growth strategy, particularly because we are fairly far behind other countries that are exporting LNG. I guess the other question with that, too, is if that's your primary uh, strategy um, for for economic growth, uh, and a lot of that um, work and and employment, and again, this is also an area for a lot of... um, uh, dispute around the, the jobs that are generated from this type of development. But th- anyway, uh, that said, is there also a, a spatial mit- mismatch or a, a geographical mismatch between the population centers, uh, you know, particularly in BC, versus where this development is proposed to take place? Well, you know, with the, I mean, a lot of this development will occur through temporary foreign workers. Uh, that is that is the way that the federal government has wanted to go, and we're seeing a lot of mining uh, already in BC is going to um, uh, occur through temporary farm workers. So, uh, by the way, most of these kinds of um, you know, particularly around gas development, um, expanding the transmission lines to uh, mines and and gas fields. 
and the whole LNG development requires labor primarily in the initial stage of building, and then afterward it requires fairly little labor. So these are not uh, major aspects of uh, improving the labor situation in the long term in, in B.C., um, we need to think more broadly of that. And as I said, if you if if the government were not simply down um, downgrading care work, uh, privatizing it, and making it a low wage occupation, then that would be a very important uh, area to expand. It's interesting. I was uh, just reading some past, uh, fairly a bit dated now, but just the differences between. Um, I think it was Sweden, for example, that um, has a, a or has had historically a fairly um, well-paid um, and unionized um, uh, care worker um, right. sector, and and the difference um, between Canada or even more specifically, you could take it down to BC, and just some of those differences also between um, the, the social outcomes and levels of inequality in certain countries, because it is. Those are highly uh, gendered um, uh, professions, and and you tend to see those things, um, you know, materialize, or I guess you see forms of inequality that, as you mentioned, are are racialized and are gendered. And I'm just wondering if we if we keep that in mind, um, what is the role of of organized labor in um, in living wages and promoting forms of uh, economic um, equity or, or equality? Well, um, we have a a very progressive trade union movement here in British Columbia, and that's not true uh, in in many provinces, but it it certainly is here, and it's not true in many countries. And so they have been, uh, the trade union movement here has been particularly active in um, promoting the welfare of people who aren't even, who who, who are workers but not necessarily in trade unions. So, for example, I, I don't know if you remember, but there was an incident in a mushroom farm a few years ago where um, where uh, immigrant workers were uh, basically, their lives were destroyed because they were overcome by gas fumes. Um, in, another t- in another case, um, uh, some immigrant women were killed because their employer was, was transporting them in a very unsafe way. So uh, the trade union movement has gone to bat for these these workers who have no one to protect them because the government does not protect them. There are very few inspectors to enforce the minimal standards that currently exist, and the standards have been lessened, as I've said earlier, uh, over time. So it's very important that uh, workers like this have some kind of protection. It's also, of course, very hard to organize them. Um, we have about the same level of unionization in BC as we ha- as is the national average, um, and we have about we're about fourth in rank in in level of unionization. So less than a third of people who work here are in trade unions, but we know that people who are in trade unions have higher wages on the whole, and that they tend to have better kinds of jobs on the whole. So um, I hope that um, we can. Um, combat the kind of uh, negative approach to trade unions that the federal government is fostering and is also fostered by this government. And we're going to see this, of course, with the teachers in, in the negotiations um, for the contract that is uh, currently underway. This is going to be incredibly important because they've always painted the teachers as being particularly problematic. But the federal government is going after trade unions through the tax law, and this is particularly pernicious, and I'm certain once they do this, it will be 
found to be unconstitutional, but that will be after the damage is done. What they want to do is to say that every uh, everything that uh, a union spends that costs over every wage over $100,000 has to be, every expenditure over 5000 and every wage over 100000 has to be reported to the government. It doesn't do this for anyone else. It does not do this for any corporations. It's really quite pointed and discriminatory. So uh, uh, we have this on the one hand, but then on the other hand, we see um, perhaps forms of more innovative and um, and necessary organizing going on within uh, the labor movement. Um, do you do you feel optimistic that there is momentum building with uh, the merger between the Canadian Auto Workers and uh, the uh, Communications and Energy and Paper Workers Union into now Canada's largest union, uh, Unifor? Is this something to be optimistic about? And are are we likely to see things um, perhaps organizing? among um, low-wage service workers and, and retail, often in uh, industries that are often quite hard to organize within? Yes, well, both of these uh, unions, uh, the Canadian Auto Workers and uh, CEP, were organizing in those hard-to-organize sectors and have been fairly successful at doing this. Um, I think their merger was essential because both had had, had very considerable um, losses of uh, union membership. So, uh, you know, uh, they they these were big private sector unions, and um, they by coming together, they still aren't as big as CUPE, which is the uh, national uh, Canadian Union of Public Employees. That's still the largest one in the country, but right, but right. Um, Unifor will be the second largest, and uh, I think it's significant. They're progressive unions. They're coming together, and uh, I'm sure you know, reorganizing the union will give them both uh, new vitality of some sort. But we do have to recognize that uh, trade unions are up against all of the might of the largest business organizations in the world and the governments and governments throughout the country that are fairly antagonistic toward unions. So it's a tough haul. Mm. What do you think we're likely to see over the next year? Uh, we we discussed this um, briefly a bit about where we're at politically, but what do you think we're likely to see as far as um, the issues that uh, non-unionized workers or uh, low-wage workers are up against, um, as well as uh, the labor movement? Well, th- th- um, I think low-wage workers are up against um, particularly difficult issues around low <laughs> around low wages but also maintaining jobs um, when we have economic crisis as we had beginning in 2008 our unemployment rates are very high and they're very very high for young people in particular the other thing is that we've had a federal government that provides fewer employment protections for people particularly around employment insurance um, we now have uh, less than 30% of people who become unemployed become eligible for receiving uh, uh, employment insurance, uh, or receiving benefits of employment insurance. That's very sad. I mean, it used to be closer to 90%. So it used to be a real insurance policy. It isn't anymore, and it only goes to people who are m- most likely not to lose their job. So people have very few labor protections now, um, <clears throat> and that really is something that needs to change, particularly because people, you know, workers and employers are the only people who pay into it. The government doesn't, and yet the government takes the money and uses it for other things. Mm-hmm. So it's very sad to see. I mean, that is what's happened in the past. They've used it to pay down the debt, not to use it as an insurance policy for people who lose their jobs. 
So that's a terrible way in which the government has undermined the economic security of um, of, of the most vulnerable in in our society. Hmm. Do you think we're likely to see uh, to see rates of unionization rise um, as more more young people mm-hmm. find themselves in precarious uh, work? Well, um, it's hard to say. Although the, the the good news was that in this past year we did see the rate of unionization rise, and in, in 2012 it, it increased over 2011. But there was a big dip, of course, during the economic uh, during the economic crisis, and this is a bit of a recovery from that. So we may see increase in unionization. Frankly, the the laws around unionization and what unions are allowed to do by law are very very difficult. And uh, and until there is a way that people can um, collectively organize um, by not uh, outside of just being in one particular locality, that is that is going to be particularly important. So right now you organize because of the type of work you do or the kind of people you work for. Um, you don't organize across different sectors of the society. So. Um, so that becomes hard, and uh, and until that happens, and until these kinds of laws change, it's going to be a slog to get up numbers of uh, people in the unions. Well, I think we'll leave it at that, uh, Professor Cohen. Thank okay, you. Okay, I sound too pessimistic. Uh, no. I do think that things can change, and if young people become uh, very active in in pursuing their own self interest, that will happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and uh, providing a bit of insight into all this. Thanks again, and take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, Professor Marjorie Griffin-Cohen, and uh, she is professor in the Department of Political Science and chair of the Women's Studies Department at Simon Fraser University. Uh, She's also an economist and has written extensively in the areas of political economy and public policy and uh, focused um, specifically on issues concerning the Canadian economy, women, labor, uh, electricity deregulation, and energy and the environment and international trade. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available always as a podcast at The City fm.org uh, and uh, now in the second half of the program uh, we have ben isaac um, who is a, a legal scholar and label, labor historian and uh, uh, he's uh, been looking at a number of issues um, particularly the the militant labor history um, in bc and he's author of a book called militant minority british columbia workers and the rise of a new left and he's also taught at UBC and UVic. And uh, this is a, an interview um, with Ben Isaac uh, that was recorded actually for um, Labor Day, for the Labor Day program um, last year. But he provides such a wonderful and concise um, history of, um, of the labor movement in British Columbia uh, that I just thought it would be uh, important to, to bring this in to sort of contextualize everything that's going on currently um, as we reflect on uh, the labor past in the in the province. Stay with us. We're going to take a short break.
Mahjong Slam Society presents Radio Fest Fundraiser on September the 6th, 2013, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Radio Cafe, 101 Hastings Street in Vancouver on the corner of Columbia. Come and meet our lineup of Aboriginal professionals and our ever-expanding cultural industry featuring model Jolene Alicia Mitten and carver Andy Wesley. With these artists and more, we will be raising funds for our first ever radio festival to be held within days on September 10th to the 13th in celebration of reconciliation. For more information, please go to redjumpslam.com. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And you've written extensively on uh, labor history and uh, union activism in BC um, and beyond. Can you talk about the rise and the birth of uh, the labor movement and labor activism in British Columbia with a particular emphasis on uh, on Vancouver and Victoria? Sure, yeah. The um, Well, the first forms of labor in British Columbia uh, were indigenous labor in the pre-contact period. And... Uh, trade unionism uh, wasn't an indigenous tradition. It's a European tradition. So the first unions didn't emerge um, until uh, after, as colonization was unfolding and shortly after the formation of the province of BC in the 1870s. And the first unions were unions of coal miners and railroad workers and the, worker, the unions of different uh, tradespeople in the city, so carpenters and electrical workers and pipe fitters and painters and that kind of thing. And so the early labor movement on the one hand was rooted in the craft unions, and these were unions headquartered in the United States that represented, I guess, the fairly narrow interests of specific uh, trades people. Uh, But on the other hand, you had industrial unions that represented workers in entire industries, whether uh, workers in mining, whether they worked at the pithead or down in the mine shaft. Uh, or worker, railroad workers, uh, regardless of what role they may have played uh, in the construction of the major railroads that connected the province to the rest of the continent. And so early on there was a tension, I guess, between the industrial unions, which are often very militant and often uh, led by socialists, and the more conservative craft unions, that, uh, where I guess the leadership often came from fairly conservative elements of the American labor movement, often headquartered in uh, cities in the eastern United States. And but that was a phenomenon not only in B.C., but across Canada. What made B.C. somewhat distinct uh, was the strength of the militant and radical labor tradition uh, in unions like, the Western, unions like the Western Federation of Miners and the United Mine Workers and uh, later the Industrial uh, workers of the world, the IWW, and by the time of the First World War, the One Big Union, which was a union that was explicitly 
socialist. It called for an end to the capitalist system. And it called for production for use rather than profit. And it sought to organize all workers into a single union that could act in solidarity uh, by basically paralyzing production in every industry to support workers in a single sector and in the process uh, bring to birth a different kind of society uh, where the interests of workers would be paramount rather than the interests of the elite. So that was there was a lot of debate in the early labor movement, but also a lot of strength over time. And it took a long time for labor to kind of find its feet. And partially, I guess, this had to do with, with politics. As labor's political muscle increased, it began to win uh, legislation, specifically provincial laws, that made a, a more conducive climate for forming unions and bargaining collectively and going on strike. And it wasn't really until the Second World War that workers in Victoria and Vancouver and other cities uh, had a, the right to form unions without facing the threat of violence by the military or the provincial police or other state entities. And that, that doesn't mean that everything was, uh, was all and well after the, the Second World War, um, but it means there was a different climate where, at least on paper, uh, the right to bargain collectively was to be respected, and there was on paper a clear procedure for workers to organize uh, and then freely negotiate their terms of work. So that was, I guess, kind of the beginning of the heyday uh, of, uh, of the labor movement and collective bargaining, the, the decades in the 1950s and 60s and until the 70s, uh, which has been described as kind of the long boom of North American capitalism, when there was enough wealth being produced on this continent as kind of the other parts of the world, whether Asia or Europe, rebuilt after being bombed out in the war, that basically North American industry reached its strongest point in world history. And the economic growth that was occurring at the time was on such a scale that it could support a level of security and prosperity, even for the working class, which had never been seen in the world. So for the first time ever and anywhere, uh, a majority of the population approached the good life with things like uh, weekends and holidays with pay uh, and uh, fairly expensive benefit provisions uh, for health and safety um, and insurance policies provided by the state um, for sickness or unemployment uh, or old age. And so that welfare state, as it was called, or that social wage which the state provided to workers was never complete and it was never as extensive in North America as it was in some European jurisdictions, for example, in Scandinavia. Uh, but it was a, a very clear difference in what it had been like to be a working class person uh, at any other point in time. But what we've seen for the last couple of decades is a concerted attack on that limited social wage that labor had succeeded in winning after the Second World War. And we're still in that phase where the rights and entitlements of working people are under attack. And this includes the basic right to organize and into a union and to collectively bargain the terms of work and to withdraw one's labor if necessary um, as a part of that bargaining process. Before we get into uh, the modern day context, can we talk about the right to organize and the right to strike, and specifically 1918-1919 uh, uh, in Vancouver, Victoria, and Winnipeg across Canada? Um, can you uh, tell us what went on in a number of these cities? 
Sure. So that was, I guess, a phase when the working class was in some ways in the most desperate situation it had been in, and also, I guess, most open to very radical and far-reaching alternatives, and most open to very unorthodox forms of labor organization. And so the context for that industrial crisis of 1918-1919 was the First World War and the massive carnage on the battlefields of Europe where 66,000 Canadians were killed, uh, half a million Canadians were injured. These were working class people, young men in their late teens and 20s who would otherwise have been filling the ranks of the industrial labor force, but instead they were shipped off to Europe. And from the standpoint of a sizable section of the labor movement, they were being shipped off as cannon fodder to serve the interests not of workers, but the interests of the bourgeoisie, as the socialists described the ruling class. And so in this context of huge of death and slaughter and maiming uh, on, the, on the front in the war, and also hardship at home with shortages of basic necessities of life like butter and bacon and heating oil and other things that working class families relied upon, and also very strict censorship at home of working class organizations and political speech that the government may not have agreed with and anti-war organizing. So in that context of death overseas and economic hardship at home and political repression at home, the working class in B.C. turned to embrace radical and militant industrial unionism. And many workers abandoned the conservative craft unions that I referred to earlier and embraced this untested model of industrial unionism that was called the One Big Union. And that union uh, was formed in the spring of 1919. So at the very moment that uh, soldiers were returning home from Europe, uh, unemployment was rising because production has, had ceased or was winding down in war in industries. Uh, and there was a huge uh, glut of workers that arrived on the labor force because a big section of the working class had been removed from the productive uh, labor force to fight overseas. Well, as the soldiers came home, there was a real feeling of insecurity. That workers had sacrificed their lives, and they were coming home to joblessness with no pensions, with no way to support their families, with a lack of access to education or land, um, or the basically lack of access to the good things of, in life. And so in that context, there was a convention that took place in Calgary. It was actually ironic. It was a convention of the BC Federation of Labor, but it convened in Calgary to coincide with a convention of, uh, of labor delegates from across the Western provinces. And at the BC Federation convention, uh, the delegates voted to form one big union. And the initiative for that referendum came from the Vancouver Labor Council and a group of socialists who were in the leadership of that council. Uh, the next day after the BC Federation of Labor Convention had adjourned, this Western Labor Conference convened, and about 230 delegates affirmed the action taken by the BC Convention and voted to form this one big union. And the delegates sent greetings to the Bolshevik Party in Germany and to the Spartacists, the revolutionaries in, in uh, Germany, and the Bolsheviks in Russia. And they voted, as I mentioned earlier, for a system of production for use rather than for profit and for an end to the wages system. And they voted to hold referenda in every workplace in Canada uh, to ask workers whether they wanted to break their affiliation from their existing unions and form and join this radical one big union. 
And it was in that context that a small a strike of uh, metal workers and building trades workers in Winnipeg escalated into the biggest industrial crisis Canada had ever seen. Because this principle of one big union, that an injury to one was an injury to all, was being actively discussed in virtually every workplace in the country. And so when the Winnipeg building trains and metal trade workers walked out, they had received a sympathetic hearing from workers not only in Winnipeg, 30,000 of whom walked out, but also workers from Victoria, B.C., to Vancouver, to Prince Rupert, and all the way across the country to Amherst and Nova Scotia. And general strikes paralyzed production in all of those cities. Some lasted for six weeks, for example, in Vancouver. Uh, in other cities like Victoria, they only lasted for a handful of days. And the duration and the intensity of the strikes often depended on the composition of the leadership in each city, uh, whether conservative craft units unionists continued to hold sway or whether the radicals had ended up in the saddle in control of the local labor council. And so in response to this industrial challenge, the state responded with a very firm hand and uh, passed. There was a number of responses. Uh, the size of the Canadian militia was doubled from 5,000 to 10,000 troops. And Parliament um, and the government of the day rushed through changes to the Immigration Act and to the Criminal Code that allowed uh, for radicals to be deported without trial and also extended the, the laws against seditious conspiracy. And uh, some of those changes took place essentially in an hour, that all three readings and assent were given in Parliament and the Senate in, in an hour for one of those legislative changes, that, which I think showed the sense of crisis uh, that government and the elite felt they were uh, experiencing at the time. And in Winnipeg, which is the epicenter of the unrest, uh, the army was deployed to occupy what was then Canada's third largest city. Um, they charged through horseback down the main street of the city through a, a, a protest by war veterans who were pro those workers were killed. And this show of military force as weeks uh, the sympathy strikes in all of the other Canadian cities, including Victoria and Vancouver, came to an end. And on the surface, I guess, it looked like a huge defeat for labor. And it certainly was a defeat for the one big union, which essentially ended up being stillborn, and it never uh, grew beyond those origins uh, in 1919. But on, in another sense, labor had learned an important lesson out of the strikes of 1919, and that was that it wasn't enough to strike at the workplace, but that they had to strike at the ballot box and that they had to organize politically to elect working-class people to Parliament who would write laws and undertake actions that were favorable to workers rather than use the power of the state to smash the working class, as they had done in Winnipeg and elsewhere. So that, I guess, would be a big picture, a very rapid overview of the crisis of 1919. Now, if we bring it up into, uh, I guess, m moving uh, over um, half a century, um, we bring, we come into the 1980s, the 1990s, and we see um, the struggle for uh, living wages. We see uh, what has been termed, you know, the the great U-turn um, in the heyday and the big uh, boom of of North American or uh, Western capitalist economies. And we see a lot of uh, defeats and um, challenges to labor activism and, and unionism. Where are we today? And um, 
from your perspective, Ben, um, what are the, the primary challenges that um, working class people face and, uh, and labor unions face? Yeah, I guess uh, the, on a basic level, it's a crisis of organization and a crisis of leadership. That, like During that long boom of North American capitalism, labor was brought in kind of as a junior partner in the economy. And this caused a real atrophy within labor's ranks. And the labor laws that emerged after World War II were written in such a way as to put a damper on radicalism and on militancy, but even a damper just on working class self-activity and kind of the rank and file connective tissue or muscle that had made unions strong and had turned them into uh, fighting organizations that were capable of winning so many games at the end of the war. And so even things like the dues checkoff, which on the one hand gave unions financial security, um, that by requiring the employer to deduct union dues and deposit those in the employer's bank account, it, or in the union's bank account, it gave unions a stable bank account, which meant they could have professional staff and research and lawyers and that kind of thing. But on the one hand, it weakened the organizational fiber of the unions, that instead of having to have a very extensive network of shop stewards who would make the rounds in every workplace on every payday to connect to collect uh, the dues, the, the unions were now off the hook, and they no longer had to have that direct face-to-face -face frequent uh, relationship with every union member. And the laws um, took a number of steps. For example, they banned sympathetic strikes. So they said that workers could not go on strike to support workers in another industry. And there was a clause that had to be in every post-war collective agreement, which stated that uh, workers could not go on strike during the life of a collective agreement. So if there was a, a contract in place at a workplace, it was illegal to go on strike. And so that, again, had a damper on solidarity and connections within and between workers in different workplaces. And so as a result of this sort of process of being a junior partner in the economy and having an official role in labor relations, unions were transformed from these fighting organizations into bureaucracies that uh, had to institutionally by the government there were very sharp limits placed on what they could do and it also had an impact internally on how union officials uh, viewed their roles on the roles that different union leaders thought they should play and rather than be a source of militancy and rather than kind of inspiring a fighting spirit among rank-and-file workers union leaders came more and more to in some ways act as policemen and policewomen within the workplace to control um, elements of uh, working class dissent that may bubble up or bubble over from time to time. And so that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in today. Um, with, and at the same time, there is a lot of diversity within the labor movement. Uh, but generally, you'll find that union leaders are often very cautious uh, whether to go on strike, even for specific issues to their own workplace, but certainly in terms of supporting workers in other sectors. Uh, and very cautious even in terms of developing the direct connection with members that's necessary uh, to win victories in a very hostile economic and political climate. And so I think the challenge today is very similar to that challenge that labor's faced throughout its history, which is that it needs to, I think, uh, basically organize, build the connective tissue and face-to-face -face connections between every worker, uh, tie issues in the workplace to a much broader vision that labor is entitled to all that it produces, 
that labor and workers should have a say in the management of industries uh, in which they're employed, and that all of these economic demands have to be tied to a larger political vision, to a different type of society uh, where workers will, I guess, have access and be entitled to the good things in life. And um, that's no small order, but I think there are elements, uh, there's reason for hope. I think we have a lot of very progressive labor leaders in BC, even labor leaders at the helm uh, of, of large organizations from provincial unions to labor councils. So I think we have the seeds to rebuild a strong and militant and radical labor movement, but that's going to take some heavy lifting I think all the way from the grassroots and individual union members all the way up to their leaders and a process of pushing the leaders, I think, and also progressive leaders helping to educate uh, their rank and file and to lead by example uh, to show that it's possible to hold power and even to act responsibly, but that doesn't have to mean selling out your membership and simply rolling over and accepting defeat at the hands of employers or the state. And that was Ben Isaac. He He's a Victoria City Councillor, legal historian and labor uh, historian, uh, legal scholar and labor historian. And uh, he's taught at UVic um, and uh, the University of British Columbia. And uh, his research has looked at uh, militant labor history in British Columbia. Uh, his book is called, um, one of his books is called Militant Minority. And uh, it's been uh, really pretty fascinating to hear about that history, and hopefully as we recognize um, the achievements and, and uh, legacies of the labor movement and um, the many things that we take for granted today, we can look back at that history and um, think about how it can inform us about current challenges and struggles uh, today in 2013. I'm Andy Longhurst, and this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And check that website out if you uh, tuned in late or uh, missed a portion of the program and you'd like to check it out. Uh, there's going to be a podcast posted there um, with the entire program. And uh, you can also check out the archive, uh, which includes um, past uh, podcasts from a range of different uh, urban topics, from things like labor to environmentalism to uh, everything from housing and um, social justice and much more. So check that out. That's www.thecityfm.org. You can also find a link off of CITR's website. That's citr.ca. And we're going to uh, wrap up the program, but again, if you want to um, follow the program and, and stay up to date, check us out on Facebook um, by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions. And uh, additionally, you should uh, follow us on Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM. And we're going to be back next week with more Critical Urban Discussions. We're here live every Tuesday from 5 to 6 p.m. on CATR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF um, 10 to 11 a.m. Fridays. So lots of ways to listen. Again, uh, online is also a great resource. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, have a wonderful wa- week. And uh, as always, thanks so much for tuning in. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, 
you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished guaranteed used bicycle or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding.